For Arizona Public Media, I'm Ariana Brocious, in for Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, we're going to look at the effect of racially insensitive language focused on Indigenous peoples. First, we'll hear how the University of Arizona president's beliefs about his ancestry led to the formation of an Indigenous student activist group. And we'll check in with members of an Indigenous volleyball team near Phoenix, who say spectators called them savages and made offensive gestures at one of their last games of the season. Plus, a mini lesson on biased language. How does it impact the targeted group? And how does it impact the person with the bias? Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Last October, students reported University of Arizona President Robert Robbins told a class of Native American students he believed his, quote, very high cheekbones pointed to his suspected indigenous ancestry. He told the class he took a DNA test and it came back negative. Many students say they found his reference to his cheekbones offensive and they asked for an apology. Vanessa Ontiveros, a U of A journalism student working for Arizona Public Media, spoke with Felicia Tagaban, a founding member of a new Indigenous student advocacy group that formed after the encounter. It's called Voices of Indigenous Concerns in Education, or VOICE. So VOICE formed after the cheekbones comment and the delayed action from administration to respond to what many students saw as an insensitive comment. But what other factors went into the formation of the group? Students came together and they recognized that the problem was weighed deeper than just one comment. I mean, it, it did make a difference that the person who made the comment is the highest ranking leader on our campus. And so uh, that definitely uh, served as a, a motivation to sort of bring visibility to the deeper issues. But they really came together because a lot of them had experienced issues on campus in various areas. They wanted to bring visibility to those issues and they wanted to do it quickly because we recognized that the comments that the president made sort of served as a catalyst for those deeper conversations. And how do comments like the one that President Robbins made make you feel just as a person? It's understandable given that our population is so small. Uh, especially in this institution. I mean, there are so few of us on this campus. So I understand having interactions with people who haven't really known very many Native American or Alaska Native students. And so I can understand that there's a, a lack of knowledge. But I think this particular comment was so harmful because it came from someone who is representing our institution since founding Voice in November, has President Robbins made any changes to his senior leadership team? He has. It points to the fact that he really took to heart the interaction and the aftermath. It, to me, demonstrates that he had a sincere response to what, what we shared with him at the community meeting after the incident. Um, and so we shared recommendations 
and he seems to have responded to them in that the senior leadership team has expanded to include more diverse people. I do have concerns that it could become the way that cabinet once was. And what was cabinet? So cabinet was um, just, again, a, a collection of diverse leaders across our campus, which included Karen Francis Begay, who is now um, working in the provost's office to serve Native American student success. He also had the structure put in place before where there were actually diverse leaders from all over our campus. But the thing that was challenging about that was um, he didn't actually meet with them. <laughs> so it just sort of served as a sort of tokenized kind of structure. But when we initially brought up the issue of the lack of representation to President Robbins, he um, said that he met with his cabinet, but it turns out he didn't really meet with them very often. And so it was a structure that existed, but wasn't really active in informing their decisions. Do you think any of these leadership changes or serious talks would have happened without the conflicts between marginalized students and President Robbins? I think that's often, sadly, how change happens. A lot of times our leaders are reactive in their responses and they tend to take notice of the issues that pertain to minoritized and marginalized students, but it's usually only because something has happened. And so Given all of the events that unfolded last year, I think they're in a place where they really don't have a choice. They have to do something about it. So the cheekbones comment was not the first time students have felt that the university acted insensitively towards indigenous communities. You've talked to alumni activists who have similar stories, but why do you think this time we're seeing some changes? Our approach was was a little different. I mean, we we chose to try to resolve the issue with President Robbins in an intimate way. We attended his uh, presidential office hours, and we spoke to him in a small setting, and we shared with him exactly why what he'd said was harmful to the students. But at that point, we also expressed some of the deeper systemic issues that this interaction sort of pointed to. And initially, he was uh, a little uh, defensive, but then I think... As we continued to work with him and to meet with him, his critical consciousness started to grow. And I think that his his understanding also started to grow. And with that, we were welcome to start meeting with other uh, members of senior leadership. They really took the time to listen to us. And they sat down with us and really learned about the problem. What do you think senior leadership learned from these discussions? I can't really speak for them, <laughs> but I I do hope that they realize that this wasn't just one interaction with one group, but rather it points to the climate that's been established on our campus. And my, my greatest hope for them is that they will look at the structures and the systems that are in place right now and really continue to look critically at those pieces and, and really consider how they can infuse the current leadership and also all of the departments across campus with an understanding of American Indian and Alaska Native students. Are there any changes in policy that you think would help you know, drive the change in the institution in the right direction? I think that they really need to step away from this format or this this tradition of just finding one person 
to serve everyone. I mean, again, we're very thankful that they've positioned Karen Francis Begay in the provost's office. I'm glad that she'll be overseeing initiatives for Native American student success moving forward. That That's awesome. But it's going to take more than just one person. Um, I, I'm hoping that they're going to actually start to implement changes within the units across campus. Pretty much anyone on the ground that's doing anything to serve Native students, I'm, I'm hoping that eventually they'll find uh, structural solutions that'll help not only educate them, but also too to um, just increase the, the commitment level to Native students um, in service and, and also too just in um, learning more about how their specific tribal identities set them apart from any other student population on our campus. Those structural changes will probably take more time than just changes in senior leadership. And as students, you only have so much time on campus. But what are the long-term goals of voice? What would you like to see in, say, 10 years? Wow, it's it's challenging to think about that far down the road, to be honest. Um, I mean, a lot of us are, are entrenched in our studies it's a lot. It's taken a toll, to be honest. I wonder if, if we weren't committed to serving our students in this way, if anybody else would, would really step in to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I, <laughs> I made the choice to set aside some time from my studies and from the work that I've been doing to focus on this. But I mean, I, I really didn't feel like there was a choice in the matter and that if I stopped doing it, no one else would really pick up that work. But my hope is that with the change of leadership, we'll get to a place where it's it doesn't matter who's in those seats, but that the institution itself will be indigenized, so to speak. All right. Well, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Karen Francis Begay says Robbins added both her and Rob Williams to his senior leadership team. Williams is a professor in the College of Law's Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program. She also says the president will be establishing a position to directly advise him on tribal affairs and create other positions to address financial aid for indigenous students. A few weeks later, there was another incident of racial tension, this time at a state volleyball game in Anthem, north of Phoenix. The Salt River High School girls varsity team, an all-indigenous team from the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community, was playing Karis Academy. During the game, some Karis fans allegedly called some of the Salt River players savages and made stereotypical hand-tapping gestures over their mouths. AZPM's Indigenous Affairs reporter Emma Gibson reports on how people are feeling four months after the game and attempts by a school athletic association to increase cultural sensitivity. For Salt River coach Kyrona Roanhorse, the memory of that game is still raw. She says the game started out normally, but when she noticed some of her players restrained anger at the end of the third match, she called a timeout. One of my other coaches said, we actually see them do the war hoop type of situation over their mouth. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on? So when the girls came, they told me what was said and what was done. Like the word savage, like was one word that I never thought would come out of somebody's mouth. After Roan Horse spoke to the other team's athletic director and the referee, several of the offending students were told to leave the gym, and they moved the student fan section closer to the parents. But as the game resumed, tensions were still high among the other fans, and they were getting higher. Roan Horse says she felt she had to stop the game for her player's safety. I know that the other team did not know what's going on, so for us to halt the game and then replay it like a couple days later was our decision. 
despite what was happening outside the lines, those two teams were competing and we were in a very intense game. Even some of the opposing team's cheerleaders were making offensive gestures, according to Roanhorse. Salt River player Hannah Reyes-Carmelo says she felt like they were trying to mess with her team's self-esteem. It kind of seemed like they were like saying that we're just a group of people that don't really deserve no respect. Coach Roanhorse says it took her about 10 minutes to leave the parking lot after the game that night. I was so angry. I had to scream. I had to cry. I had to yell in my own car and with like nobody around, without nobody seeing me. This is not fair for these kids to go through. How can I fix it? What can I do to make it better? I now have to help them through another phase in life that they wasn't supposed to experience. Seattle King is one of Salt River's team captains. She says being called a savage wasn't normal for a volleyball game, but it happens a lot at her basketball games. A lot of times it's just like, just little um, gestures that they'll do, like, you know, the tomahawk chop or the like, the whooping, the war sounds, the derogatory names. I've heard some like savages, different things like that. It's just always part of the game. King's mother, Cynthia Claw King, says when she goes to her daughter's games, she hears these and other thoughtless comments about the Salt River team from some of the parents and students sitting around her. When they find out they live out here on the reservation and they're assuming that there's no power and stuff like that sometimes, and it's like, no, we have the same stuff you guys have. <laughs> Just because it's on a reservation doesn't mean, you know, they don't have the resources that you guys have. Both schools are members of the Canyon Athletic Association. Executive Director Randall Baum says after the story was picked up across the country and the public learned what the Karis Academy students allegedly did, the school received threats of violence. He says Karis Academy administration apologized for their students' behavior during mediated conversations between the representatives of both schools. Baum says the association now has a multicultural competency committee, made up of athletic directors and administrators from their member schools. He says they wanted to know what coaches, players, and parents have experienced, so they sent out a survey. Have you had any multicultural training before? Do you talk about racism or anything within the team? How is your diversity? What are things that you do to make sure that people respect each other's cultures? Baum says the association is also partnering with a company that challenges racial discrimination in sports. He says the association hopes to have a conference this fall that will teach student-athletes how to talk about racial tensions with their teammates. Seattle King, one of the Salt River team captains, says she hopes the fallout from this event will spur wider awareness of the harm racist words and gestures can cause, but expects it'll take a while for overall behaviors to change. I feel like everybody's actually woken up to the idea of that this always happens because not much people actually talk about it. I've gone through this so many times, but it's never been brought up like it's been brought up this time. Cars Academy didn't respond for comment for this story. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Emma Gibson. Have you ever been stereotyped? What about tokenized? Elisa Ivanitskaya, a production assistant for Arizona Spotlight, asked people on the street to share their stories. I come from a small, a small rural town in northern Arizona, so a lot of people think since you're from a small town, you're just automatically a nobody in that you can't work for anything or you're just going to be there stuck all your life. And 
people are surprised when I say, oh, I'm from the small town and I'm here obviously at the university on full ride scholarships. And I think having those like stereotypes, it's like one, it kind of hurts, but at the same time, like it obviously it can show to like prove people wrong. My advisor did ask me about corona, coronavirus in my family, but that's not exactly a stereotype. It's just, are they okay? <laughs> yeah. Since I'm from Spain and I speak Spanish, like they, you're Mexican for sure. And I'm like, no, I'm from Spain. It's like, well, the same thing. You know, they say, that's what they say. Towel head because I wear a hijab. So I was called like a towel head. And one time somebody told me to go back to my country. And I've had people like ask me, they're like, oh, is that like a weave? I'm like, no, it's just my natural hair. Like, I'm sorry, I have nice hair. Some other things might be just like the way you talk or something. Some people are like, oh, you don't talk like ghetto or you don't talk black. I'm like, that's because I was raised in the suburbs. But just stuff like that. I, I'm a queer. Usually people stereotype me as a, as a straight and a white person when I'm actually biracial. But I, get, I just get asked the question a lot, like, are you straight? Are you gay? That's a little offensive because that's personal. <laughs> I'll come to you if I feel like telling you. The thing I'm complaining about is having like white straight privilege. So obviously, you know, I can't complain that much because I don't have to worry for my safety. I was very active until about 10 years ago. Then I got sick and ended up in a wheelchair. People assume I'm slow or I don't know what I'm talking about or I'm not educated. I do have a bachelor's degree. Alisa Ivanitskaya, a production assistant for Arizona Spotlight, spoke with Shelby, UC, Alejandro, Amina, and Destiny around the University of Arizona, and Mesquite and Daryl at the downtown Ronstadt Center. Psychologists say biases like the ones we've just heard about can impact people's achievements, their health, and of course, their relationships. AZPM's Indigenous Affairs reporter Emma Gibson spoke with U of A psychology professor Jeff Stone to find out more and to learn how we can reduce our biases. What really are the differences between prejudice, stereotype, and bias? Are they all the same? Both prejudice and stereotyping are forms of bias. People's stereotypes, their negative beliefs about what the group is like, can lead them to act in ways that are negative for the group. Prejudices, their negative attitudes, or negative emotions toward the group can have a similar effect, but it's a little bit more of a way they feel as opposed to a, a belief about what they're like. And when you're having conversations with people who have over or subconscious biases, how do these conversations start to maybe tell them like, hey, what you're saying is hurting others or they see it as prejudice, they see it as racist? How does a productive conversation start? Well, when we do implicit bias training, um, we find that uh, people can be pretty defensive about it at first. Um, because I don't think anybody wants to believe that they're prejudiced, uh, that they're biased. And when they learn about the, the fact that this can happen outside of awareness, it happens so fast, it's so automatic, um, they become concerned that, oh my gosh, I've been biased in the past. And um, that's something that takes a little bit of you know, getting used to. 
we do find, though, that people become very uh, motivated at that point to want to learn what can I do to be less biased. And then we find that we can lead them through different exercises and teach them different strategies that will, if they want to adopt them and change, they can. And, and we give them skills that they can use that will circumvent that bias. And what do those skills really look like? Well, there's several ways in which bias can get communicated unintentionally. One is through nonverbal behavior. And so it's not so much what you say, but how you say it that can have a big effect on the person you're talking to. The amount that you smile, the amount of eye contact, are you leaning forward or are you leaning back? Little things like that that you can work on that actually communicate much more engagement than the, the bias would normally allow you to do. Another strategy we talk about is looking for things that you have in common with somebody who's different from you. Because the minute that you find that you have something in common with someone who's different, they're no longer different from you, they're similar to you. Third thing we like to do is have people look for ways in which the person that they're interacting with is different than the stereotypes of their groups. And the minute that, that people detect that, oh, this person's really different than I think people from this group normally are like, that makes it impossible to rely on the bias or the stereotypes. They're not useful anymore. When you hear things like Point Hill and Squaw Peak Resort, Squaw is a derogatory term towards indigenous women or sports teams that do have language that some people find racist. How do you change this language on an individual level or more on a, a society level? Well, I think it would help to educate people about the effects of the language, the effects of certain symbols, uh, and, and how they affect the groups uh, that they're supposed to represent. There are many symbols that we think of as positive that actually have a negative effect on uh, the groups that they represent. And I think if people understood the negative effects better, they might be more motivated to want to make some changes with respect to those symbols and, and that language. And to do that, they have to have those conversations where those affected by the prejudice, the bias, the stereotype, share how it actually makes them feel. Uh, and I think, yeah, a lot of the time the problem is that for traditional reasons, these symbols, these forms of language become part of the culture. And uh, it takes people becoming motivated to say, well, we don't want to be like this anymore. We don't want our culture to be like this. We don't want to have people feel excluded for us to make those changes. But education is often not enough because once people know that this is having this effect, the next question is, well, what can we do about it? And I think that that's, that's what we really need to be thinking about is what can we do to make these kinds of changes uh, so that uh, more groups can feel included. What happens when that person who is saying that allegedly racist thing or has that stereotype doesn't see it as a problem and doesn't see the need to change. How does that work out? Well, it's one of the things that's so tough about trying to change people's biases is when they really work for them or so they perceive them to. One of the things about stereotypes and why they're so prevalent is because we use them all the time for anticipating interaction with a group. And there's always the question of how accurate is the stereotype. And some people believe that some stereotypes that they hold towards groups that are very, very negative are really, really accurate. And so it becomes very, very useful for them to be able to rely on that. And that's what can make it really difficult to get them to change that belief. So when it comes to mental health, how do prejudices actually affect the person that they're directed towards? Being the target of other people's bias can certainly lead to a lot of anxiety and distress. Uh, it can lead to depression. 
Um, and all of those can also um, contribute to health problems as well. And how do prejudices impact a person who is spouting them? There's emerging evidence that holding bias is also not so good for our health. Uh, and there's some studies that are starting to emerge in the literature suggesting that uh, holding high prejudice, for example, is correlated with uh, some health detriments for the people that are prejudiced. How do you think this conversation impacts the national conversation that we're having about prejudice? And really, like, is it okay to be overtly biased? I think one of the things we're facing in this country and in the state right now um, is a, a big change in the norms about how we think about prejudice and discrimination and the treatment of uh, underrepresented groups. And I think what we're really battling right now is a shift in the norms toward it being more permissible to hold prejudices and to express stereotypes and to overtly discriminate against all kinds of groups. And so while those norms are sort of supporting, you know, the existence and, and expression of bias, all the strategies that we, you know, we've learned about over the last couple of decades of research in psychology, um, you know, my concern is that they're less effective because they, they needed support from uh, society to say, we don't, you know, believe in bias and we don't want to be, uh, we don't want that to be part of our culture. And so I think we have to um, take that into account with respect to any strategies we're going to use going forward to uh, address bias. We need to find a way to uh, overcome the normative message, which is that this stuff is okay. Thank you so much, Professor Stone, for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. That was Emma Gibson and Jeff Stone, a psychology professor at the University of Arizona, talking about biases and how we can reduce them. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. Arizona Spotlight is a product of Arizona Public Media. This week's show was produced by Emma Gibson and hosted by me, Ariana Brocious. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, Duncan Moon is the interim news director, and our music is by Calexico. Mark McLemore will be back next week. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.